Welcome to the Afternoon Light Summer Series produced by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. In this summer series, you will hear presentations from our November 22 conference on Coming to Power, Learning to Govern and Gathering Momentum 1943-54. to In today's episode, you will hear from Lucas McLennan on Menzies and the Movement, Two Pillars of Australian Anti-Communism, followed by Lorraine Finlay on What Liberty for the Enemies of Liberty, Reflections on Menzies and the Attempts to Ban the Australian Communist Party. I'm serving Prime Minister. One of the reasons for that, there's a, a range of causes obviously, but one of the main reasons for that is because of the Labor split of 1955 and the emergence of the DLP. So just one example is the 61 election and the 1969 election with John Gordon where DLP preferences uh, played a, a strong role in allowing first Menzies government, then, but then later Liberal governments to be re-elected. And so during that period, you have Menzies Liberals and Santa Maria's movement or the DLP, although they're two distinct things, being closely connected to each other and mutually reinforcing each other in a way. But what I wanted to look at today in the 1942 to 54 period is the way in which these movements had a lot in common with each other. Okay, so we know that anti-communism was a core feature of the Menzies program, both in opposition and government, from 1942 to 1954. And as has been established by many, many scholars, too many to mention by name, Menzies' anti-communism wasn't just based on reaction or fear, as some have argued, but based on his deep commitment to British liberal principles. Menzies, like many Liberals, viewed communism as a threat to the British way of life and the tradition of ordered liberty, which he understood to have emerged from the British tradition. So that's one pillar of opposition to communism in Australia, what you might call the British or the Liberal or the Protestant tradition in the country. But during the same period, I argue that there's another pillar of anti-communism that is prominent but draws its anti-communism from different sources. And that, of course, is the Catholic-led movement to defeat communism in the Labor unions and to prevent the growth of communist influence in the ALP, Bob Santa Maria and his organisation. And what I think is clear is that the movement of Santa Maria created a significant political subculture that drew on Catholic social teaching and European political thought to oppose communism. So it drew on sources very different to Menzies in opposition to communism. So while Menzies obviously used anti-communism to win elections and to form his political program, Santa Maria and his followers approached things from their own tradition. And they looked at Menzies as something of an other in that he shared their anti-communism. They were very suspicious of him in the 1942 to 54 period. So what I'm going to look at in this 20 minutes at least is how Menzies was viewed through the movement's publication, which was originally called Freedom in 1942 to 1946, and then from that time on it was known as News Weekly. So I'll start by looking a little bit at Menzies' attitudes, although that's not going to be the main focus of the talk today, then at the movement's attitudes and what they had in common with each other despite being on different sides of the political divide in the 1940s. 
So we know that Robert Menzies' staunch opposition to communism grew out of his attachment to 19th century British liberal ideals that formed the culture in which he was raised and educated. Modern political debates about whether Menzies was a conservative or a liberal try and impose current political categories on the past. But most readings of Menzies' speeches and writings can conclude very clearly that he adhered to a distinct form of Australian liberalism informed by a Whig reading of British history. In a sense, Menzies was a conservative liberal in that he sought to conserve the British liberal tradition that he saw as under attack from the forces of socialism and communism. Stephen Savura and Greg Malouche have argued that Menzies is a cultural Puritan with a commitment to ideals of sturdiness, independence, freedom, self-scrutiny, godliness, duty, and domestic life. And those themes are present throughout the Forgotten People's speeches. Judith Brett has argued that Menzies' Protestant heritage informed his rhetorical commitment, at least, to British liberty and his strong belief that a cohesive society required men and their families to have the means to be independent of the state and to cultivate a commitment to the community. In Menzies' view, the British Protestant and liberal tradition was best symbolised by the free individual who worked hard, owned property, gained an education for himself and was therefore able to contribute to the community. State socialism and revolutionary communism both sought to crush that individual into a collective. So those values of independence, individuality, education formed much of the basis of Menzies' suspicion of both state socialism and communism. And it informed in the 1940s in particular Menzies' opposition to three of the Labor government's referendums in 1944, in 1946 and 1948, which sought to increase the power of the state with the exception of one of the questions in 46, which was on social services, and which is the only one that passed, and the anniversary of that occurred recently. In relation to Santa Maria and the movement, Bob Santa Maria was an outsider to the British liberal and Protestant world and establishment of Australia. He was born to Italian migrants, so he was an outsider even in the predominantly Irish Catholic culture of Mannix's Melbourne. A brilliant student like Menzies, he found himself at the Christian Brothers St Kevin's College in Turak on a scholarship and afterwards proceeded to the University of Melbourne to study law and arts. Involved in the Campion Society, he learnt the ideas of such Catholic thinkers as Hilaire Balloch, G.K. Chesterton and Christopher Dawson. And he was appointed by Daniel Mannix to work at the National Secretariat for Catholic Action. He and his disciples, so to speak, eventually advocated for a range of policies that was called distributism, but basically advocated for a small state. And you know, they didn't want to have a big welfare state, which became the predominant viewpoint on the left in the West. So as a result of all of this, Santa Maria and his allies were suspicious of both the Anglo-Protestant establishment in Australia, as they would have called it, and the threat of communism and state socialism. So when News Weekly, or Freedom as it was originally called, started being published in 1942, it was critical of both state-centric socialism and obviously the ideas of the Liberal Party as it was reconstituted in 1944. 
So the Freedom Program, which they began to advocate in 1943, was always listed on their publication. And they called for, among other things, public control of monopolies, public control of credits, industrial councils, assistance to small owners, part ownership of industry for workers, family homes for all, a strong program of regionalism and decentralisation, and a national campaign for family land settlements. So during the period from 1942 to about 1950, the viewpoint on Menzies of the movement was expressed through this publication. So I'd like to explore that for a moment. So first of all, the movement's view of the United Australia Party and then the Liberal Party was representative of a corrupt establishment. After the UAP and Country Party defeat at the 1943 election, Freedom editorialised that the coalition only served the gods of big business and that they were no more democratic than the red fascist and communist bosses. Later, Freedom simply saw the newly named Liberals as a rebadging of the party of bankers, industrialists and monopolists. In this framing, the establishment that would come to be represented by Menzies fitted in with the communist critique. Menzies and the coalition were seen as a sectional party, similar to Labor, but in the interest of the big end of town. While such statements can be seen as exaggerated, they also speak to the suspicion of Anglo-Protestant capitalism that was present in much of Catholic social thought in the English-speaking world. So Ballock, Dawson and Chesterton all viewed, as I said before, the Reformation as the source of many of the economic problems of the 20th century. And so for Santa Maria and his followers in the 1940s, they shared that suspicion. So secondly, the movement saw Menzies' creation of the Liberal Party on the ashes of the UAP as simply an attempt to put a war, what they called wartime clothes on the old party. The new Liberal Party's commitment to freedom would mean nothing, freedom editorialised, unless it was ready to fight monopoly, to demand realistic measures to destroy monopoly, and measures which will be economically hurtful to monopoly so that the small man can live. Protestations about freedom serve only to bring that sacred cause into dispute. That's the end of the quote. So the movement could not take seriously the claims of a new Liberal Party to represent the interests of small business and small farmers because the movement saw big business and the state as hostile to the interest of workers and families. And from the perspective of the Santa Maria movement, both an enlarged state and a concentration of power in large businesses was a threat to freedom and the independence of common men and their families. Another common theme of Freedom and News Weekly in their attitude to Menzies during this period, as an enemy of the Labor movement politically and as a person who benefited from the divisions over communism, he was not an effective anti-communist leader or fighter. So in 1945, for example, Menzies was accused by the publication of playing politics over the issue of communism in the trade unions. Whereas Ben Chifley had taken pragmatic measures to ensure the ending of a communist-inspired strike in New South Wales in December 1945, Menzies advocated for harsh measures, including the imprisonment of some of the strikers. The writers at Freedom believed would have inflamed the situation to the benefit of the communists. In the view of freedom, Menzies could not be relied upon to act as a statesman in such matters because he benefited from any turmoil in the union movement and did not see the union movement as essential to the welfare of Australian working people. The movement clearly believed that Menzies' policies would harm their efforts to defeat communism in the union movement. And in the lead-up to the 1946 election, 
They criticised the Liberal policy of allowing the government to break strikes by freezing the funds of striking unions. Such a policy, according to the publication, would throw the decent unions to the side of the communist agitators. That's a quote. So Menzies was respected, however, by the publication for his foreign policy viewpoints. Menzies had joined with Mannix and others back in 1939 at a pro-peace rally in the Melbourne Exhibition Building and essentially supporting the appeasement policies of the government at that time. The publication praised him for his statesman-like talk in 1944 on the need for Japan and Germany to not be completely destroyed after victory in World War II. Menzies was heavily criticised by a range of forces, particularly those in communist unions and, or communist influenced unions, because of his statements. But Menzies, according to Freedom, had understood the lessons of Versailles. He understood that the military case in Germany and Japan had to be removed, but that peace and stopping communism required economic prosperity to be available to the people of the defeated nations for the good of the world. As we'll see shortly, the publication also presented Menzies fairly with his concerns about the Labor referenda of the 1940s. So in total, Freedom and News Weekly received Menzies and the New Liberal Party in the 1940s as being too closely tied to the interests of large businesses and in a more sectarian era as representing an Anglo-Protestant establishment and not understanding the social questions that needed to be addressed and seeing them as perhaps being not effective in fighting communism. So how are we going for time, Georgina? Two minutes. OK. Well, I'll quickly just go through response to the referendums. So essentially, an area of commonality between the two, Menzies Liberals and Santa Maria's movement, is their suspicion of Labor's reconstruction agenda after World War II. So... In 1944, the Curtin Labor government held a referendum, which was defeated, that tried to put 14 powers into the constitution, and they included things like national health, family allowances, foreign investments, monopolies, air transport, national infrastructure, and also, interestingly, statements upholding freedom of speech and freedom of religion, which is something that the movement, well, the Freedom Publication is strongly advocated for. So the position of freedom, so the position of the movement, reflected their concern with centralisation. And they were always quite critical of these proposals before they crystallised. But given the location of the movement within the fight to control trade unions and its connection to the Labor Party, it always felt that it needed to advocate for a yes vote. But it always did so with caution and with you know, a request that an acknowledgement that the situation wasn't ideal. So in relation to the 44 referendum, they argued that while Australians had shown a healthy suspicion of all moves to centralise control in Canberra, it was OK to support this particular referendum because the need for these powers was essential because of the situation of World War II, but that in future they should be very cautious about granting those powers. But they were concerned, they expressed concern that the Communist Party of Australia was so heavily involved in advocating for those particular measures. And they argued after it was defeated that the reason for that was because of the communist affiliation. Now, Menzies, during the 44 referendum, supported the efforts of the Australian Constitutional League to oppose the 14 powers. And he, along with that league, 
advocated against it because he saw it as giving too much power to Canberra and effectively taking away powers that should have been left to the states. Mostly what I'll address in the chapter when it's published is looking at the differences and similarities between Menzies and the movement in terms of their approach to those referendums, but also the communist referendum of 1951. So I've sort of run out of time, unfortunately, to go through too many of them. But I'll just finish off by saying that the core aspect that I'm interested in exploring is how both of these pillars okay, saw the threat of communism as the central issue in Australian politics. So Menzies saw it as a threat to Australia's distinctively British and liberal way of life, and Santa Maria saw it as a threat to religion and his ideals for implementing some kind of Christian social program in Australia, which emerged in the 1940s as well. But what I think is really important is to understand that anti-communism in Australia, which is often seen as a purely negative force, was prosecuted by two pillars of movements or groups that actually had a really positive vision of what a good society would look like. And I think looking at these pillars in relationship to each other is valuable. So thank you. so much and good morning everybody. It's a real pleasure to be with you today as part of the second annual conference at the Robert Menzies Institute. I apologise that I'm not able to be with you in person. I'm actually in Geneva at the moment as part of Australia's sixth periodic review under the Convention Against Torture. We've had two days of public hearings with the Committee Against Torture which have covered a really broad range of topics but Relevantly to our discussions today, the committee actually asked a number of questions at yesterday's public session of the Australian delegation around Australia's counterterrorism laws, and specifically the question of how you ensure that national security laws strike an appropriate balance between protecting public safety, but also upholding human rights. And that's the theme that I wanted to explore with you this morning by reflecting on the attempts by Menzies to ban the Australian Communist Party. And part of the reason that I think reflecting on this is so important is because it really encapsulates what is an enduring dilemma for liberal democracies. That is, if you're committed to freedom and democracy, in what circumstances and to what extent should you be willing to compromise or even to sacrifice entirely your core beliefs in order to defeat threats and enemies. And this continues to be an issue that Australia grapples with. To give two examples from my own personal experience, I don't think anybody from the Institute was actually aware of this when we were discussing the topic for this conference, but I actually wrote my honours thesis back in 2002 on this very issue, looking at the constitutional validity of the first set of counter-terrorism laws that were introduced by the Howard government following the September 11 attacks and examining the constitutional limits within Australia that inform this balancing of national security concerns with the protection of civil liberties. At the time those measures were introduced, they were described by a parliamentary joint committee 
as being the most controversial pieces of legislation considered by the Parliament in recent times. And the then Attorney General Darrell Williams described those reforms as measures that are extraordinary, but so too are the evils at which they're directed. And that language will sound familiar to you when we go on this morning to reflect on some of Menzies' speeches relating to the banning of the Communist Party. The second example is an event occurring in a few days' time when I'll be representing the Australian Human Rights Commission in a public hearing conducted by the Independent National Security Legislation Monitor as part of his review into Division 105A of the Criminal Code, which is the legislative scheme that allows for the continuing detention of terrorist offenders after they've completed their custodial sentence, where a court is satisfied that they pose a continuing risk to the community. The issues raised when we reflect on Menzies' attempts to ban the Communist Party are still issues that we confront today. Across these three examples, the Menzies era attempts to ban the Communist Party, the national security legislation introduced by the Howard government following the September 11 terrorist attacks, and the counter-terrorism laws designed to protect Australia from present-day terrorist threats, we can see the same core question arise. Namely, what liberty should be provided to the enemies of liberty? On one view, as expressed by President Barak of the Supreme Court of Israel, while democracy fights with one hand tied behind her back, she nonetheless has the upper hand since preserving the rule of law and recognition of individual liberties strengthen her and her spirit and allow her to overcome her difficulties. That was really the view expressed by Robert Menzies in earlier years, where he actively resisted the idea of banning the Australian Communist Party on the grounds that, in his words, in time of peace, doubts ought to be resolved in favour of free speech. Back in 1939, when introducing the National Security Bill into the Australian Parliament, the then Prime Minister Menzies observed, and I quote, the greatest tragedy that could overcome a country would be for it to fight a successful war in defence of liberty, but to lose its own liberty in the process. In a speech given in 1946, Menzies described it as a very, very serious step in peacetime to prohibit the association of people for the promulgation of any particular political views. And he stated, referring to communism, that we must not let it be thought that they are such a force in political philosophy that we cannot meet them. Menzies' view at the time was that democratic values would triumph over communism if there was an open competition of ideas. For example, in a speech given to the parliament in 1947, Menzies declared that I have complete confidence in the basic sanity of our own people. If we deal with these people, referring to the communists, openly, we shall defeat them. Of course, his approach across these years, which suggested that individual rights should be restricted as little as possible, consistently with preserving national security, is bookended by the fact that Menzies, in fact, dissolved the Communist Party first in 1940 and again in 1950. In 1940, the Menzies-led United Australia Party Country Party government dissolved the Communist Party under the National Security Subversive Associations regulations on the basis that it was a body that was prejudicial to the defence of the Commonwealth 
and the efficient prosecution of the war. This was accompanied by the banning of communist publications and government raids of party premises. The ban on the party and publications was subsequently lifted by the Curtin government in 1942, and the regulations were eventually held to be invalid by the High Court in the Jehovah's Witnesses case in 1943. In the years following the conclusion of World War II, Menzies is on the record again as resisting the idea of banning communism and the Communist Party. But by the 1949 federal election, his position had shifted again. He's been described by some as being deeply conflicted over the question of the ban, or even inconsistent in relation to his views on this issue. Some have described his position and the changing views that he expressed as reflecting a Machiavellian belief that divisions within the Labour Party made the issue one with the potential to split that party and thereby destroy it, or that he may have been responding to political pressures by virtue of the fact that a number of allied organisations, including the Returned Services League, the Australian Constitutional League, the Victorian League of Rights and the Country Party had all campaigned strongly in favour of a ban being adopted. While there is no doubt that Menzies understood the politics of this issue, and perhaps it's not surprising that our longest serving Prime Minister was adept at making the most of the political opportunities that did present themselves, it's also possible to conclude that Menzies' approach to this issue despite his views changing, was still grounded in values and principles. My reading is that Menzies' core views did not themselves change. He had always recognised the need to strike a balance between security and freedom and consistently understood the significance of limiting freedoms any more than absolutely necessary in order to preserve the public good and national security. What did change was his perception of events and the nature of the threat being faced. And that then changed his assessment of where the balance should lie. And there's no doubt that in those few years between 1946 and the federal election in 1949, there had been significant developments, both within Australia and internationally, that highlighted the growing influence and what Menzies perceived as the growing threat of communism. Examples in Australia included industrial unrest, such as the coal strike that lasted for seven weeks in mid-1949, and an ongoing rail strike in Queensland that was widely believed to be communist-inspired. The international context was particularly significant, including the communist coup in Czechoslovakia in February 1948, the blockade of West Berlin, and the detonation of the first Soviet nuclear weapon in August 1949. In a public statement in March 1948, Mendes observed that recent events have made it quite clear that Australian communism is treasonable, anti-democratic and destructive. In view of the gravity of the international situation and the vital importance of Australian production and transport, communist activities can no longer be tolerated. The records support the conclusion that the changes in Menzies' approach from banning the Communist Party back in 1939-40 to then resisting efforts to ban the Communist Party immediately following the war to then taking a policy 
to the 1949 federal election to again ban the Communist Party wasn't purely political, nor was it purely populist. But in fact, it reflected an evolving assessment of the threat being faced. And the records do suggest that Menzies was conflicted over the Liberal Party policy to ban the Communist Party, which was a policy that was first unanimously adopted by the party on the 11th of March 1948. There were reports at the time that Menzies was amongst a group of Liberals who'd argued against the adoption of the policy at that March meeting. And his diaries on a subsequent trip to London highlight his doubts about whether banning the Communist Party was the correct approach. Whatever his private doubts, though, Menzies took a clear public commitment to banning the Communist Party to the 1949 federal election. In announcing that the Liberals' election platform would include a ban on the Communist Party, Menzies emphasised that war with the Soviet Union was foreseeable and that it would have been, in his words, and I quote, madness to wait until you were at war before you take steps to protect yourself. He described communism in Australia as an alien and destructive pest and stated that, and I quote, the day has gone for treating communism as a legitimate political philosophy. After winning the election in 1949, the Communist Party dissolution bill was introduced by the newly elected Menzies government as one of their first major measures. The recitals in the bill sought to describe the nature of the threat being addressed with, for example, one recital describing the Australian Communist Party as engaging in activities or operations that were designed to bring about the overthrow or dislocation of the established system of government. The Act had three distinct categories of targets. The first was the Australian Communist Party itself, which was to be declared an unlawful association with the result that it was dissolved and its property forfeited without compensation. The second was organisations that either supported communism or were affiliated with the Communist Party, such as trade unions, which could be declared unlawful by the Governor-General, which then meant that the organisation would be dissolved and that any membership of that organisation would become unlawful. It was an offence punishable by five years imprisonment to be an officer or member of an unlawful association knowingly. Finally, the third target was individuals, with the Governor-General being able to declare a person to be a communist and engaged or likely to engage in activities prejudicial to Australia's security or defence which then meant that the person could not hold office in the public service, nor could they hold any positions in industries vital to the security or defence of Australia. The onus of proving that a person was not a communist under this law lay with the person themselves. There were only limited, and I would suggest overwhelmingly inadequate, safeguards built into the Act. Reflecting on this law, George Williams has described it as, and I quote, one of the most draconian and unfortunate pieces of legislation ever to be introduced into the federal parliament. It threatened to herald an era of McCarthyism in Australia and to undermine accepted and revered Australian values, such as the presumption of innocence, freedom of belief and speech, and the rule of law. 
perhaps demonstrating the dangers of these types of laws, during his second reading speech, Menzies read out the names of 53 prominent Australians holding senior office in trade unions or key industries who he claimed were senior communists. He referred to this group as a traitorous minority which threatened the security of the nation, but then had to correct this list a fortnight later with respect to five of those names after admitting that it contained errors. During the parliamentary debate, Menzies addressed the criticism that his proposed law banning communism undermined liberty and democracy by asking the question, after all, what liberty should there be for the enemies of liberty under law? Menzies acknowledged that the bill was admittedly novel and far-reaching, but described it as a law relating to the safety and defence of Australia that was designed to give the government the power to deal with the king's enemies in this country. He directly acknowledged his previous opposition to banning the Communist Party, explaining that events have moved. He said, we're not at peace today, except in a technical sense. And he referenced the most threatening events in Eastern Europe, in Germany, in East Asia and Southeast Asia. The legislation found broad support amongst key parts of the Australian media. The Canberra Times editorialised that freedom in the accepted British sense should be suspended until it was no longer under threat from the cancer of communism. And the Brisbane Courier-Mail argued that if democratic liberty is to be preserved for all who believe in it, it must be defended against enemies who would destroy it. It cannot allow itself to be used for its own destruction. And that is the only use communists have for free speech and other democratic rights. Now, that's not to say that the law wasn't controversial or criticised. For example, The Age warned that the bill was more drastic than many liberal-minded people would have expected, and the London Times issued a warning that sounds familiar when we consider today's debates around counter-terrorism laws, cautioning that methods which imperil fundamental freedoms, once written into a statute book, may be used in years to come for purposes not remotely to be envisaged now. 32 academics from the University of Sydney warned that the illiberal bill exposed Australia to the charge of employing the same tactics as the communists. And an open letter published by The Age from 14 academics from the University of Melbourne condemned the bill as dangerous and unwise because it departed from the fundamental democratic freedoms of constitutional and criminal law and condemned it as an example of democracy fighting totalitarianism by some of its own methods, and thus undermining faith in the values of democracy without which no democracy can stand. It was probably put most bluntly by Norman Cowper, later Sir Norman, who'd previously stood for Parliament as a candidate with the United Australia Party and was closely associated at this time with the Liberal Party. He wrote a contribution to the Australian Quarterly and said, why oppose Satan if we're going to adopt his ways? Despite these concerns, the public was clearly in favour of the proposal by a fairly substantial majority. An Australian Gallup poll in May 1950 found that 80% of voters were in favour of banning the Australian Communist Party. The bill was initially opposed by the Labor Party. However, reading that public sentiment and fearing that a double dissolution could be called, 
the federal executive of the Labor Party directed its members to withdraw their opposition and to allow the bill to pass. Given that, the Act became law on the 20th of October 1950. Of course, the passage of this Act was not the end of the story. A High Court challenge was launched by the Australian Communist Party, 10 trade unions and communist union officials. With Dr Herbert Evatt, then the Deputy Leader of the Labor Opposition, accepting a brief to appear in the High Court on behalf of the Waterside Workers' Federation, a move that the New South Wales President of the Labor Party described as ethically correct, professionally sound and politically very, very foolish. The Communist Party case remains one of the most significant constitutional cases in Australian history, with the High Court striking down the Communist Party Dissolution Act by a six to one majority. The case has been described by constitutional law scholars as a celebrated victory for the rule of law. While all judges acknowledged that the Commonwealth had the legislative power to protect itself from subversion, they found that this act went significantly further than that. This has been described by George Winterton as one of the most important decisions ever rendered by the High Court in terms of its confirmation of fundamental constitutional principles such as the rule of law, its impact on civil liberties, and its symbolic importance as a reaffirmation of judicial independence. Following this, Menzies called a double dissolution election, ostensibly on the basis the Senate had twice failed to pass the Commonwealth Bank Bill, but in reality, the issue that dominated the campaign was communism. The Liberal Party candidate in the seat of Barton, the seat that was held by Dr Evatt, was World War II hero Nancy Wake, who campaigned on the slogan, I'm the defender of freedom, Dr Evatt is the defender of communism, which gives you an idea of how the politics was playing out around this issue. The Menzies government won that election and then sought to change the Australian constitution to insert a provision to give the Commonwealth government the power to make laws in reference to communism and communists. Dr Evatt, who was now leader of the opposition, described the amendment as one of the most dangerous measures that has ever been submitted to the legislature of an English-speaking people. The referendum campaign reflected the core question that I highlighted at the beginning of this discussion. What is the right balance between security and freedom? And Ivor Greenwood, who was later to serve as a minister in the McMahon and Fraser governments, described the referendum legislation as completely contrary to all that liberalism stands for. The referendum was held on the 22nd of September 1951 and was lost. Reflecting on this in the context of the later debate over counter-terrorism legislation in Australia following September 11, then Prime Minister John Howard stated in 2002 that he believed the Australian people made the right decision in rejecting the proposal. An interesting observation about that referendum, perhaps in light of referendums that are currently being planned in Australia, is to note that three months prior to the referendum being put and lost, a Gallup poll indicated that the ban was actually supported by 73.3% of those surveyed. And if the referendum had been held on that date, it may well have been won. It's also important not to lose sight of how close this vote actually was. The national yes vote in favour of effectively banning the Communist Party was 49.4%.
with only around 52,000 votes out of over 4.6 million that were cast around the nation, separating the yes from the no total. If 30,000 people in either South Australia or Victoria had voted yes rather than no, the proposal would have succeeded and the Communist Party would have been banned. Which again, just serves to reflect this constant tension in this question about security versus liberty. And the fact that there isn't ever a single clear answer, but a constant balancing that needs to be accommodated. While this was effectively the end of the formal attempts to ban the Communist Party by the Menzies government, there were subsequent policy decisions taken by the government to address concerns about communism and to strengthen national security. Examples include the Royal Commission into Soviet Espionage in 1954-1955, which was set up in the wake of the 1954 Petrov Affair, and Australian foreign policy under Menzies, which was strongly focused on stopping the spread of communism, particularly within Asia. The fundamental question about striking that balance didn't go away, and it remains a key issue today, which leads me to the conclusion of asking, well, what can we learn from the attempts by Menzies to ban the Communist Party? And to my mind, there are two key lessons that we can draw. The first is that strong public policy requires a combination of both clear core values, but also pragmatism. There are always trade-offs and compromises, and shifting the balance in response to changing circumstances isn't a sign of philosophical inconsistencies. In Menzies' case, it was a reflection of reality. But at the same time, the final lesson to be drawn is that there are limits beyond which core values cannot and must not be compromised, lest the very fibre of the nation be irretrievably altered. And that's the final lesson. That is, we cannot pass laws that undermine the very democratic freedoms that we're seeking to protect from terrorism. A key responsibility of any government is to always protect national sovereignty and the safety of its people, but ensuring that our laws in this area balance the protection of national security with a strong respect for human rights and freedoms isn't a sign of weakness. Quite the opposite. It's a clear indication of the strength of our nation, our values as a nation, and our enduring belief in freedom and democracy. And I think those are the core lessons that really can be drawn from reflecting on the Menzies era and the various moves around whether or not the Communist Party should be banned. And I might leave it at that, Georgina. I hope you've enjoyed hearing from the presenters at our 2022 conference on this summer series of the Afternoon Light podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute. To hear more from the Robert Menzies Institute, please make sure you subscribe to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you.